Good morning. Uh, welcome to Cultivate and uh, our, our family gathering here today. Uh, it's good to, to be here with you this morning and be able to, uh, to celebrate what God has done through His Son, uh, to be able to be equipped to be His people, and, uh, and then to go from here uh, celebrating Jesus and all that we do, and, uh, and telling others and reminding one another about all that He's done for us. Uh, we're, we're going through a series in the book of Acts called Acts of the Spirit, where we're looking at uh, this book written by Luke, who also wrote the Gospel of Luke, and we're looking at everything that Jesus uh, did and continues to do through his body called the church. And since uh, we are part of that body now 2,000 years later, we're reading it from the perspective of what has God done and what is God continuing to do and how does he want to shape us to be his people who care for one another and are sent out on his mission every, every place that we go. Uh, so we're going to be in chapter 6 and chapter 7. We've actually got a large chunk uh, to take care of today. It's a big story, and so we're going to read through that. But I want to remind us, last week what we saw was that um, the, the church, it's, it's beginning to encounter opposition from a number of different sources. And uh, last week, it, it encountered uh, a situation that had the potential to derail it from its mission. And that was an issue over the care of people within their community. Because in faithfulness to Jesus' mission, it actually created more problems for them. And one of those problems was that there, there was a situation that arose um, where, where people needed to be cared for as family. And in that particular case, they, they weren't being cared for as they should. And so what we saw was that uh, the leaders, they take action by calling people to nominate lead servants who will then take responsibility uh, and lead others by their example. And if you remember, if you were here last week, what we said is that um, every community of God is, is inevitably going to have to balance mission and care. And, and if you subtract one of those two things, you cease to become the family, you cease to be operating as the family of God because God wants both a family to care for one another and a family to show the rest of the world what this caring family looks like and how God came to initiate this family through Jesus. And secondly, what we saw is that it was the primary job of the leaders within that community to equip the rest of the family to be the primary vehicle for the care. And so the, it was the church leaders that then said, we want you to nominate from yourselves people that are going to take responsibility to, to do this. And third, what we saw is that that required uh, of, the, of the church that everyone be involved and everyone see themselves as servants. And so those, those things are still true today. And, and it's funny because, you know, sometimes you read through a passage and it kind of affirms, um, you know, what you're doing or what, what you want to do or where you're going. And it, and it kind of, you know, builds off of what you're already thinking. And then sometimes you read a passage and it kind of smacks you in the forehead you ever get to a verse like that? And you're like, oh, man. Like, things have to change because of this. And, and so just after giving that sermon last week and after considering it this week, I think one of the things that, uh, that we need to be better about is care for one another. And, and in particular, uh, as a church, we need to spend some time and some, some space to be able to equip our body well so that we would be able to shepherd one another and care for each other as well as be on the mission. Because remember, you have to balance both of those things. And so John mentioned before that we're having a missional living training on, what was that, the 20? The, what's that? 
on the 30th, thank you. Um, and, and I would encourage you to, to mark that out on your calendar and plan to stay, because what we're actually going to talk about at that training is, is how can we be equipped to be gospel shepherds to one another, and then how as a church can we grow in our ability to care for each other. Those are the things that we're going to focus on. So I, I hope that you can stay for that. Today, um, we're going to see that one of the servants that was nominated, one of the seven men, a man by the name of Stephen, he's going to have a very short term in his, in his uh, deaconing, in his, his lead uh, serving. Um, because he was, he was just you know, nominated for that position last week. And here we're going to see the entire rest of the arc of his life. So he's, he's going to begin his service and end his service all within one chapter. And, and he's going to be uh, charged by a group of leaders um, who, who in their charge of Stephen are actually missing the point of what God is doing. How many of you have ever missed the point of something? You know, like you, you think something's about one thing and then you do it and you realize afterwards like that wasn't the point at all, you know? Like, you know, I, I think so, you know, Caleb brings home some assignments sometimes and, and um, like he'll show it to me. I'm like, what's this all about? And he's like, you know, it's, it's the letter A and it, like it's, a, it's circles. It's like not even letters, you know, like, okay, we're missing the point of what it was about, even though you did, the, you know, the work. And I think so often we could be people that miss the point. Um, and, and we're certainly going to see that from the group of people that Stephen interacts with and who charges with him with something. And the, the irony is that it's a group of people who, who were supposed to understand the point. They, they were supposed to, to, to get it. In fact, they had given their whole lives to, to proclaiming the point and living their life after it. And what we're going to see is that they actually are the ones that, that miss it. And so in response, Stephen's going to tell them the story of what God has been up to since the beginning and it's a story that they know inside and out. It's like if somebody were to go to you and tell you your own family story. You'd be like, yeah, I, I, I know all that. Like, I've been there, you know? But somebody from the outside is sharing your own family heritage with you, but they're sharing it in such a way that they're trying to illustrate the point that you've been missing with your own family. Because these people, even though that they, they believed this story, they lived this story, uh, it was all in their heads, essentially, and their hearts were actually far from being changed by their own story. They were missing the point by the way that they were living. So, so we're going to start in verse 8 of chapter 6. Um, you can read along if you like. It's a, bit, it's a big section, so you may want to just listen to it as a story. Um, and uh, it's also on page 760, if you're going to follow along in the Bibles that we have. Now Stephen, a man full of God's grace and power, did great wonders and miraculous signs among the people. So last week we saw Stephen was nominated to, to, to serve tables. I mean, that's the way that they put it. He was, he was to be a, a servant of people. But now we see, I mean, just a few chapters, like just a, a few verses, a few lines later, he isn't just serving people. He's actually proclaiming God and doing some pretty incredible things. They're all signs that the Spirit was, was in Stephen and working through Stephen. Um, and so opposition arose, however, from the members of the synagogue of the freedmen, as it was called, Jews of Cyrene and Alexandria, as well as the provinces of Cilicia and Asia. These were descendants of freed slaves. That's where they got their name from. 
And these men began to argue with Stephen, but they could not stand up against his wisdom or the spirit by whom he spoke. Then they secretly persuaded some men to say, we have heard Stephen speak words of blasphemy against Moses and against God. And so they stirred up the people and the elders and the teachers of the law, and they seized Stephen and brought him before the Sanhedrin. The Sanhedrin was a, a council of people made up of Pharisees and Sadducees that were the, the keepers of the law and the, the, the masters of the temple. They were the, the religious authority of their day. And these people, the Sanhedrin, um, and then they produced a false witness who testified against Stephen. This fellow never stopped speaking against this holy place, that's the temple, and against the law. It's funny because those are the same two things that they said about Jesus. For we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and change the customs that Moses handed down to us. All who were sitting in the Sanhedrin looked intently at Stephen and they saw that his face was like the face of an angel. Anybody know what a, what, what is an angel sent to do? Who are angels? Yeah, in Hebrew, the, the word angel means messenger. So it's not like he, he just looks saintly. Uh, he's got the face of somebody who's about to deliver a message, and we're going to see what that message is. Then the high priest asked him, Are these charges true? And to this he replied, Brothers and fathers, listen to me. The God of glory appeared to our father Abraham while he was still in Mesopotamia before he lived in Haran. Leave your country and your people, God said, and go to the land that I will show you. So he left the land of the, of the Chaldeans and settled in Haran. After the death of his father, God came to him and said, This land where you are now living, uh, and God sent to, the, to this land where you are now living. He gave him no inheritance, not even not even a foot of ground. But God promised him that he and his descendants after him would possess the land, even though at the time Abraham had no child. God spoke to him this way, your descendants will be strangers in a country not their own and they will be enslaved and mistreated 400 years. But I will punish the nation they serve as slaves. That was going to be Egypt. God said, and afterwards they will come out of that country and worship me in this place. Then he gave Abraham the covenant of circumcision. And Abraham became the father of Isaac and circumcised him eight days after his birth. Later, Isaac became the father of Jacob. And Jacob became the father of the twelve patriarchs. They know this story. Because the patriarchs were jealous of Joseph, they sold him as a slave into Egypt. But God was with him and rescued him from his troubles. He gave Joseph wisdom and enabled him to gain Good, the goodwill of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. So he made him ruler over Egypt and all his palace. Then a famine struck all Egypt and Canaan, bringing great suffering, and our father, fathers could not find food. When Jacob heard that there was grain in Egypt, he sent our fathers on their first visit. On their second visit, Joseph told his brothers who he was, and Pharaoh learned about Joseph's family. After this, Joseph sent for his father Jacob and the whole family, 75 in all. Then Jacob went down to Egypt, where he and his fathers died. Their bodies were brought back to Shechem and placed in the tomb that Abraham had bought from the sons of Hamor at Shechem for a certain sum of money. As the time drew near for God to fulfill his promise to Abraham, the number of our people in Egypt greatly increased. 
Then another king, who knew nothing about Joseph and the kindness he had given, became ruler of Egypt. He dealt treacherously with our people and oppressed our forefathers, forcing them to throw out their newborn babies so that they would die. At the time, Moses was born, and he was no ordinary child. For three months, he was cared for in his father's house. Then he was placed outside. I don't know if you remember that story. He was placed in a basket in a river. And Pharaoh's own daughter took him and brought him up as her own son. Moses was educated in all the wisdom of the Egyptians. It was powerful in speech and action. When Moses was 40 years old, he decided to, to visit his fellow Israelites. He saw one of them being mistreated by an Egyptian, so he went to his defense and avenged him by killing the Egyptian. Moses thought that his own people would realize that God was using him to rescue them, but they did not. The next day, Moses came upon two Israelites who were fighting, and he tried to reconcile them by saying, men, you're brothers. Why do you want to hurt each other? But the man who was mistreating the other pushed Moses aside and said, who made you our ruler and, our, and judge over us? Do you want to kill me as you killed the Egyptian yesterday? When Moses heard this, he fled to Midian, where he settled as a foreigner and had two sons. After 40 years had passed, an angel appeared to Moses in the flames of a burning bush in the desert near Mount Sinai. And when he heard this, he was amazed at the sight. He went over to look more closely, and he heard the Lord's voice. I am the Lord, I am the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Moses trembled with fear and did not dare to look. Then the Lord said to him, Take off your sandals. The place where you're standing is holy ground. I have indeed seen the oppression of my people in Egypt. I have heard their groaning and have come down to set them free. Come now, I will send you back to Egypt. This was the same Moses whom they had rejected with the words, Who made you our judge? He was sent to be their ruler and deliverer by God himself through an angel who appeared to him in the bush. He led them out of Egypt and did wonders and miraculous signs in Egypt at the Red Sea and for 40 years in the desert. This is that Moses who told the angel who spoke to him out of Mount Sinai and with our fathers, and he received living words. It was the law. Living words to pass on to us. But our fathers refused to obey him. Instead, they rejected him and their hearts turned back to Egypt. They told Aaron, Make us gods who will go before us. As for this fellow Moses who led us out of Egypt, we don't know what's happened to him. And that was the time they made an idol in the form of a golden calf. And they brought sacrifices to it and had celebrations in honor of what their hands had made. But God turned away and gave them over to the worship of heavenly bodies. Something like astrology. This agrees with what is written in the book of the prophets. Did you bring me sacrifices and offerings 40 years in the desert, O house of Israel? You have lifted up the shrine of Moloch and the star of your god Raphan, two, two idols, idols that you made to worship. These are false gods. Therefore, I will send you an exile beyond Babylon. Our forefathers had a tabernacle of the testimony with them in the desert. It had been made as God directed Moses according to the pattern he had seen. Having received the tabernacle, our fathers under Joshua brought it up with them and they took the land from the nations God drove out before him. 
They remained in the land until the time of David. David's their greatest king. Who enjoyed God's favor and asked that he might provide a dwelling place for the God of Jacob. But it was Solomon, David's son, who built the house for him. However, this is, this is kind of where the story turns. They're, up, they're, they're, they're tracking with him this entire time. Uh-huh, uh-huh, okay, uh-huh. But you're just telling us everything that we know already. This is our family's story. Why are you, I mean, we just asked if these are, accusations are true. You give us the whole story, like from beginning of time until now. Like, are, is Stephen just long-winded? What, I mean, what is he doing? Here's where the story turns. However, the Most High does not live in houses made by men. As the prophet says, heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. What kind of house would you build for me, says the Lord? Or where will my resting place be? Has not my hand made all these things? This is where it it turns up the intensity even further. You stiff-necked people with uncircumcised ears and hearts. Ouch. You are just like your fathers. You always resist the Holy Spirit. Was there ever a prophet your fathers did not persecute? They even killed those who predicted the coming of the righteous one. He's talking about John the Baptist there. And now you've betrayed and murdered him. That's Jesus. You have received the law that was put into effect through the angels, but you have not obeyed it. In other words, you used the law in the temple, which God originally made as good things, and you're now using them to replace God and His voice in your life. You think, man, that's pretty strong stuff, right? It gets worse. When they heard this, they were furious and they gnashed their teeth at him. But Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, looked up into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. So I picture this like they're in a courtroom setting, and now it's as if like the walls fall down, and, and Stephen can see that they're not just in a building made by man anymore. He can actually see God in the room, Jesus standing next to him affirming everything that Stephen has said so far. It it would be like suddenly all the walls in this room become transparent and you can now see where the building is situated in reality. This is all going on for Stephen right now. And so he says this, Look, I see heaven open up and the Son of Man, Jesus, standing at the right hand of God. At this they covered their ears and yelling at the top of their voices, they all rushed at him. And they dragged him out of the city and began to stone him. Meanwhile, the witnesses laid their clothes at the feet of a young man named Saul. He's going to be a very important character coming up. And while they were stoning him, Stephen prayed, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Then he fell on his knees and he cried out, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. Does that sound familiar? And when he had said this, he fell asleep. Luke's saying he died. So, I mean, think of the context here. It's a long story, and we're, just, we're trying to pull out a few things from it. In, in the face of serious accusations that he was undermining the law and, and blaspheming or, li- or telling lies about who God is and what he had done, 
How easy would it have been for Stephen just to refute everything that they were saying? I mean, all the Sanhedrin do is they bring him in and they go, is it true? Like, are you denying Moses? Are you denying God? I mean, what's going on? I mean, he could have easily gone, no, actually, you know, I affirm Moses. I affirm everything. You know, I I believe in Jesus. But, I mean, he could have framed things in such a way where he walked away scot-free. But what does he do? He dives headlong into the accusations and actually makes it worse for himself. Right? I mean, he takes like this much trouble and he turns it into an, an ocean of trouble for himself that he ends up ultimately drowning in. But he's doing it to make a point. He, he, wants, he wants these religious leaders to understand that there's something big that they are missing out on. And it's so important to, to Stephen that they understand what they're missing out on that he's actually willing to turn up the heat on himself if it means that he speaks correctly and truthfully and honestly and with integrity about what he's seen and what he knows. You see why Stephen was nominated as a servant to serve others? There, there's something great that God is doing in him so, so what is it the point? What, what's the point that they missed that Stephen is trying to emphasize for them? Well, the first point I think that they miss is this, that, that what God has always been up to from the beginning until now, that's why he paints this whole story, his primary objective is that he's wanted to establish a relationship with people, with us. Um, where does Stephen start with the story? He gets accused of denying Moses. Does he, does he go back and go, well, let me tell you about what I believe about Moses? Or, or what does he do? What do you think? Where does he start the story? He starts with Abraham, right? Who came hundreds of years before Moses. He starts with Abraham. Why? Because before the law was even around, God was working to create a family. He was working to establish a relationship. That's that's the whole point. And so God established a relationship with Abraham before there was a law. If you notice the way that he tells the story, he established a relationship with Moses before the law ever came about. He said, you're going to be my prophet. You're going to gather my people. You're going to get them out of Egypt. All before the law even came into effect. And then he goes on, he starts talking about David. And how God established a relationship with David before this whole thing called a temple even came along. What are the two accusations that are coming against Stephen? You're blaspheming, you're telling lies about God because you don't believe in the law and the temple. And his tactic is actually to go before all those things and go, hey, the reason we even have the law and the temple is so that God could establish a relationship with us. And... and he, he, that's his primary thing. He is most concerned with, with, with getting a, a relationship with people. And so Stephen's going, you know the story of how the law and the temple came to be, but you missed the whole point of what those things were given to do. You think I'm speaking against them, but I want to remind you of why we had them in the first place. God wants to know you, and He wants you to know Him. But, he says, our people, they reject 
Moses. They reject all of the prophets who were sent to them to remind them of this simple thing that God was all about, which was to establish a relationship. He says Israel always rejected the prophets. What are the, what's a prophet supposed to do? Do you know? He's supposed to bring the word of God in order to do what? Yeah, call them back to God. That, that's the function of a prophet is to say to, to people who have, who have gone astray from the relationship, God wants to remind you that he, he, he wants you back. That He's for you and with you and that His arms are open to you and that you've been living in such a way that you're actually repelling God instead of accepting Him. And so he, he's wondering to himself, is there ever a prophet that came along that wasn't persecuted? See, God wants to establish a relationship and so He sends us people who call us back to Himself and the history is that those people who do that get persecuted and killed for it. And then he goes on to say, and this is where the, he turns up the, the heat, the intensity on them, and you guys have done the very same thing. You're no different. You're accusing, and this is the irony of ironies, right? He gets hauled in because he's, accusing, he, he's being accused uh, of lying about God. And, and instead of defending himself, he goes on the offense of it. He says, no, you're the ones that are actually on trial today. <laughs> That's pretty amazing, right? That he would do that. He says, you're the ones that have rejected the prophets that God sent, and therefore, it's not me who've rejected the law, it's you who've rejected the law. So let me ask, because this seems like a, a good thing to dialogue about. Why are the religious leaders then so angry that they actually want to stone Stephen at that accusation? I mean, why did they lose it? If you remember just a couple chapters ago, I mean, Peter and some of the other apostles, they were saying very similar things. And they just got, they, they got let go with a, a beating, basically, and sent on their way. The, the, the leaders at this point are so indignant at Stephen that, that they just, I mean, their emotions just take over and they have to kill him. So they drag him outside the city and they stone him. What, what was it that... that made them so intense about this? What do you think? Yeah, so in some sense, the, the, um, this community of Jesus followers, they're not going away at this point, right? They're actually intensifying their argument. And so sometimes intensity leads to over-intensity, right? So, yeah, that could be part of it. Yeah. Yeah, so he's, he's undermining their entire identity because the story that they understood led them to be in their position, right? So if I believe this, it leads to me being here. This is the Sanhedrin. These are the people that are ruling over Israel. Yeah, God has affirmed that. So they've actually increased in power and authority based on their story. Stephen kicks the legs out from all of it, right? He, he didn't get, get out of his way to what? Yeah, right, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, he doesn't tone his language very much, does he? But yeah, so they, they would have seen themselves as being in the camp of those who were approved and accepted by God, right? In the camp of the prophets. They know the prophets as well as Stephen does, maybe even better. And they would have seen themselves being in line with all of those things. And Stephen goes, no, actually, they're over here and you're over here. They're speaking to you now. 
Yeah, that, and that doesn't set well with them, right? What, what else? Yeah, they're, yeah, in a sense, not wrong, but maybe God is doing a new thing, right? Yeah, they weren't listening to, anymore to the voice of God, right? They were listening to the, uh, well, well, we'll get into that in a second. It's, it's real easy, isn't it, over time to get used to the packaging that we've, ex- I mean, accepted God to live in. And then, I mean, Stephen's presenting an entire different story and package to them that, that says, no, God actually doesn't live in the boxes that we've created for him anymore. And their whole, their whole worldview, their whole belief system had been predicated on the structures, on the law and the temple. That's why when they come with these accusations, it's, they're not making up all this other stuff. They're going, no, it's the, you're, you're undermining these two things, right? I, I think I mean, there are a few things, a plethora, that we, that we could actually talk about. But one of the main ones, I think, is that they were accusing him of denying Moses who, who embodied the law, embodied um, everything of what it meant to be God's people was based on the law that Moses had given. How, how do you know that you're God's people? You keep the law. That's how you know. And you go to temple. Those two things were the, the, the big you know, sign that said, this is how we know that we're God's people. And so what, what Stephen is doing is he's undermining all of that stuff and saying, no, no, um, the old law that, that, that we all thought was the way that we knew that we're God's people, that actually doesn't have the power to save us anymore. It doesn't have the power to, really, to, to create the relationship that God wants for us anymore. So, so I mean, think of how radical that is because he's, I mean, if you were... Um, so, I mean, so imagine that you're, you know, a, a Jew living in this time. Your entire worldview is based on the belief that the way to a relationship with God is through keeping commandments and regulations. The whole way that you maintain this relationship with him is that there are a whole list of things that you you're ought not to do. And so in, in you not doing those things, not lying, not murdering, not cheating, not stealing, not bearing false witness, I mean... And then all the other lists that the Pharisees added on to that to make sure that we weren't, you know, by way of implication, doing those lesser, like the, the fewer things. Um, and then there are a whole list of other things that we should be doing. And one of those things is going to, to the temple week after week to give offerings and sacrifices to God. And the whole system is reinforcing the, the, this thing that the, the way that you know that you're God's people and that God is satisfied with you is that you live a holy life and you do the activities that tell you you're part of God's people. You go and you give sacrifices. But now someone comes along and says, actually, Jesus is the final sacrifice. He's the one who came and He fulfilled all of the, of the requirements of the law. Everything that we were charged to do, but do imperfectly, He, he did the whole list. His sacrifice was final and it was perfect. And so therefore, it's not the law that saves you and it's not going to the place where you tried to fulfill the law that saves you. It's now Jesus. He replaces both the law and the temple. And that would have been seen as blaspheming Moses and what God was up to. The law and the entire temple system that these leaders were charged with maintaining. See, it's not just that Stephen is challenging the authority of the temple. 
he goes back to the store and he goes, it had its place. Like, God had instituted it to be for the people a way that they could come and be in relationship with God. But he's saying now, God no longer lives there because the final sacrifice has been made. And that is going way beyond what Peter and the others have said to them so far. See, and this is starting to dawn on the temple leaders now. See, at the heart of what Stephen is saying is this simple but radical shift. And what he's saying is this. We don't need anything or anyone except for Jesus. And neither does anyone else. It's exclusive and inclusive all at the same time. Jesus is the only way, which therefore excludes your way, but that way is now available to absolutely everyone. And and so this, this is corroding the foundation of the very system that these people had built their entire lives around. So why do you think that was so threatening to them then? Yeah, there was a fear of change. And that, that change represented um, a, a shift that now their, their activity, their, their lives, what they had given themselves over, no longer had the ability to save them. It no longer had the ability to create a relationship with God. It no longer had the power that they thought it once did. It no longer put them in the position that they thought it once did. In, in, in essence, the reason that they're so threatened is because Stephen, by his life and by his words, has just revealed that everything that they've given themselves over to is not God, but it's a false God. It's an idol. right? It's, it's something that they have now used to replace the living and the active God. Um, and, and, and it was an idol that put them at the center of the system with all the power and all the authority that comes from it. It was a system that they could then manage and control. And I, I would say this, anything in our lives that actually becomes an idol, anything that we use to replace God's presence, we do it under the name of this is much easier to control and manage than a living God. Because God Himself is something entirely other. Um, but an idol is, 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 is something lesser that we can exercise control over. So I mean, and an idol is anything that you give worth and value to above and over God Himself. Anything that you find your identity in other than God and what He says is true about you. And so on one level we think, man, why would we do something like that? And on the other level, it makes perfect sense to us because if, if our job becomes our idol, that's something that we can manage really well, right? I mean, we decide when we go in. We decide when we leave. We decide what we do. Um, we, we can manage how, you know, to a certain degree how much money we get from it and and how effective we are at it. The more time that we put into it, the greater return it has for us. It's a very simple system. Think about relationships too. It's exchanging an invisible presence of God who, who, who wants to come and live in us and exercise control over us actually to, to being in relationship with somebody else that we can then manage the relationship of. We can get instant gratification from. And, and, and we can use our time to, to develop that relationship to replace God. What is it that you're building your life on? 
What is it that you're placing your dependence on? What is it that you're looking to to compete with the presence of God? Please know that anything that, that we're doing that with, it will not gain for us the primary thing that God wants for you and for me, which is a relationship with him. In, in fact, anything that we're building our life upon other than Jesus will keep us from Jesus. That's the irony. Is Jesus your final sacrifice? Or are we trying to build a relationship with God based on another means? Based on our good work or our performance or what we do with our time or a certain relationship or a certain uh, title that we have in a part of life? A certain... Uh, way that people see us. Maybe we want like you know, some characters in the story for people to see us as a servant or as a spiritual person or as a leader and we gain all of our identity from that. Those things will actually keep us from relating to God, keep us from experiencing the relationship that he wants for us. The second missed point is that God's primary means to accomplish this relationship is actually to come and live in us. So, uh, you know, somebody mentioned before... Um, well, the Sanhedrin, the, the temple was the, the visible reminder of the law and of their authority. It, 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 and it wasn't just that, but it actually represented the place where God came down and dwelled on earth. Um, N.T. Wright puts it this way, that the temple was the place where heaven and earth came together. They had that kind of significance for them. And then along comes Stephen, and he reminds them of what the prophets say, which they've you know, forgotten along the way. He says, The Most High does not live in houses made by men. Heaven is my throne. Earth is only my footstool. So like, I just, you know, I don't, I'm, I'm not confined by it. What house will you build for me, says the Lord, or where will my resting place be? Has not my hands made all these things? So it was my hands that made the, the mud that you turn into bricks to build a house for me. It's my hands that made your hands which then construct the temple. Who's, who's in charge? Who's confined by a building made by the, the hands of, of man? See, and then Stephen comes along, and this, this is what somebody had mentioned before, and the radical thing about Stephen, it's not just his words, but it, it's who he himself represents. Notice how many, somebody said this, how many times Luke takes pains to remind us of how Stephen was filled with the Spirit. I mean, every time Stephen's mentioned, the Spirit's mentioned. Like, if, if you want to know anything about Stephen, he's filled with the Spirit. That's who he is. Even his face kind of lights up with the Spirit's presence. And so, he's a living, breathing temple of the living God, filled with the Spirit of God, whose face is like an angel and whose words have God's power. And so he's representing everything that the Sanhedrin thinks should be happening within the temple. And I think there's something inside of them that realizes that, that, that God is working in Stephen in such a way that the temple is empty. See, the Sanhedrin were, were content with living in, in a building and having God live there and being subject to a system that they can manage and understand. Easy for him to meet with, easy for, for them to control. But in Stephen, they're presented with a God who cannot be controlled because he no longer lives in the box that they've made. 
I remember, you know, and I think this pattern is true of us. Remember when I first came to faith in Jesus, um, God was just a concept for me. He, he was uh, represented by the building, I, and I grew up in a tradition where um, you would go to church, and when you went to church, um, there was a little box and it had a candle in it, and that candle represented the presence of God. And so the, the, the relationship that I made in my own mind was every time the candle's lit, it means God's in the room. And, and God stays in the room with the candle. I mean, it made perfect sense to me when I was growing up that the building was the place where God lived. And, and so he was some, someone you visited, like a distant relative. Um, so, someone you went to see and someone you'd hear from every once in a while, but not somebody that was actually living and present in your life. And I remember when I actually gave my life over to Jesus, he came and he lived in me. God was not a concept anymore. He was a reality. He, he was an untamable force now. And I, I remember, you know, living life, and it, and it became a 24-7 reality. Sometimes God would, you know, move me and remind me of how he loved me. Sometimes he would convict me of areas of sin, which I had no problem committing before I knew him. And now all of a sudden, I, like, I feel the tension and, and the reality of this living, breathing thing going on in my heart. But here's the thing that happens. Over time, we take that living, breathing entity that's within us, and we start to construct things around it in order to make it easily understandable. And so I found myself in a relationship with God going from God as a concept to God as a reality to then trying to make God a concept again and wanting to, to be able to manage my relationship with Him rather than to have Him managing me. So I think that's the movement that we're all subject to. Um, but if we're in Christ, we are now the temple of the living God. We are now the place that God dwells in, resides in. Um, Paul reminds us in 1 Corinthians 6, Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have received from God? And here's what I've learned over time. The more I allow God to be a person, who, has, uh, who exercises influence over me rather than a concept in which I control, the more I experience His power working in me. The more I try to make God into a, a concept that I can manage with my own activity, the less power that I experience from Him being a person who influences me. I, have you ever experienced that? The more I, I put God in a box, the more God goes, okay, if I'm in a box, then you're up to yourself. See, the way that we live differently is by a new power that actually exercises itself through us. And it's the power that we see in Stephen in a radical new way. And it makes no sense to those who've confined God in, in the ways that are familiar to them. See, if we don't get that, then we're going to be just like the religious leaders. If we don't understand that God lives and breathes and moves in us, not just when we're here, but when we're everywhere, and when we get to, together to be here, which is an important thing for us to do, it doesn't change. And so 
we don't come to the building in order for it to, to be our relationship with God. We come as people who have a relationship with God and God living in us to be reminded of that fact and then to go and live it everywhere that we go. Third point I think that they miss this is the last one that we'll do is that the primary evidence that, that a relationship with God has come, the primary, mean, the, the primary way that you come to know that a relationship with God is there and that he's living in us is Jesus living his life out through us. So that's how you know that God has come. So God's primary goal is that we'd have a relationship with him. His primary means is that he would live in us. And his primary evidence is that he would be living through us. And so the Sanhedrin, they believed that the primary things that showed you were God's people was that you kept the law and you went to the temple. That's how you know that you were righteous. That's how you know that you were becoming holy. And Stephen's life and his death actually show something else entirely. They show a radical new reality. And this is, I mean, you can see it even in his death in, in verse 56 and onward. Look, he said, I see heaven open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. And notice the contrast between the two. It's almost like Stephen's becoming more and more at peace. And, and those around him that don't have the Spirit of God are becoming more and more agitated. And so at this, they covered their ears and yelling at the top of their voices. They all rush at him. They drag him out of the city and begin to stone him. And while they were stoning him, while this chaos is going on around him, Stephen is praying. And he prays, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And then he fell on his knees and cried out, Lord, don't hold this sin against him. And when he said this, he fell asleep. So let me ask, the, this will be our, our last kind of dialogue piece then. From what we've read about Stephen last week and this week, what do we know about him? What's true of him? And in particular, what distinguishes his life from the religious leaders? Yeah, yeah he relied on the Spirit. Yeah, he was a servant, right? One of the things that we come to know about Stephen is that um, he, he actually he was given a title because he served those who were distant from the religious system, right? And one of the major contrasts that you see between Stephen and these religious leaders is that this, the system that the religious leaders had, had, had built was, was predicated on serving those who would come into their system. Stephen isn't doing that. He's, he's a servant to those that were excluded from the religious system, right? I mean, he's giving his life to, to Greek-speaking Jews, and he's a servant to them. He's going to them. That's like how Jesus goes to those who are far from God, right? What else? What differences do you see between Stephen and the, and the leaders here? How do you know he's thinking about their best interests, even though they're stoning him? <laughs> I mean, yeah, he prays for them. He prays for those who are killing him. What do you do with that, right? I mean, that's got to be the Spirit of God actually working in it. He's calling down blessing and forgiveness on those who are cursing and killing him. <laughs> I mean, it's unreal. I mean, it, 
You see, he's starting, he's looking more and more like Jesus, right? I know, right? He, he, yeah, there's a peace and a vindication. And he receives the vindication through, through actually having his focus on heaven and not on earth, right? I mean, he, he sees a vision of, of Jesus standing at the right hand of the Father. Um, that's significant. Like, in a, in a courtroom proceeding, especially in that day, you know who stands? A judge sits. Do you know who stands? Those who are accused, yes. But also, witnesses stand. So, if you're being accused of something... Um, the judge who's ruling over it would sit at your trial and then you would have people come and bear witness on your behalf and those people would stand for you. Stephen, in the midst of being accused of not being on God's side, sees a vision and in his vision, Jesus is standing. I mean, do you see what's going on? He is being his advocate there in that moment and, and, it, and with Jesus as his advocate, he's going, okay, I, I can rest now. Like, there's nothing more that you can do to me. My Lord and Savior gave his life for me is now standing at my trial. I, I want to remind us of that because so often we, we can look for others to be the ones who stand in the gap for us. Or we, can, or we think, man, I've got to be the one to do it myself and the one who stands up for me because nobody else is going to stand up for me, please, please know that if you're in Christ, Jesus right now is standing before you at the side of the Father saying, yep, they're innocent, they're clean, they're whole, they're good to go, I've made them so because of my blood and my final sacrifice. They're mine. And Stephen is living out of this reality. See, his life is proof that he has a relationship with God because his life and even his death, they radiate with Jesus' presence being lived out through him. I want to ask you, is, is your life increasingly mirroring Jesus as he lives through you? Do you find yourself increasingly burdened by the needs of those who are considered cast off? The broken and the poor the sinner, the person who will never set foot in this building? Do you find yourself praying blessings and forgiveness over those who've harmed and maligned you? Are you increasingly satisfied with Jesus being your advocate, the one who speaks over you and says that you're mine and you're loved and you're safe and you're cared for and I will never forsake you? See, if we're not careful, we could be people who miss the point. We could be people who build our lives on something other than Jesus, and that would miss the point. We could be people who live our lives by some other power other than Jesus, and that would miss the point. And we, be, we could be people who live for some other purpose than to show what God, who God is and how He lives in us and through us and that we belong to Him, and that, that would miss the point. The way that you do those things, though, is not by going back to some law and saying, how do I get better? Please hear that from the story. The way that you get Jesus is to let Jesus live in you. The way that you let Jesus live in you is by pursuing a relationship with him. See, if you want to see Jesus live through you and in you, the only one that's capable of doing that is him.
Please don't leave this morning and go, okay, I've got another law that I've got to somehow live up to in order to see these results. The reason that they're called fruits of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, self-control, all those things that we long to see in our lives and in other people, the reason that they're called fruits of the Spirit is because the Spirit brings them. So let's be people that look to the Spirit. Because when we look to the Spirit, we get filled to the Spirit and we get to see God do some amazing things in our lives. We get to react and, and live out our lives much the way that the Spirit would have rather than we would have. God wants a relationship with you. He wants to live through you. That's the whole point of today. Please don't miss it. Please don't miss it. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you for the example of men like Stephen. And it would be easy for us to look at a life like Stephen's and then ask the question, how do we replicate that? How do we try to do the things that Stephen did <clears throat> to get the outcomes that Stephen got? And maybe we, you know, we don't want the final outcome, but Lord, we, we, we want to see you move and we want to see your power in our lives. But please, please don't, don't let us get caught up in, in the doing trap. Help us to be people that look to you to do, who look to you to fill, who look to you to establish the relationship and to rest. To be people that rest in Jesus as our final sacrifice. To be people that ask you, Jesus, to come and to be the power source by which we live and to come and, and, and have you actually live your life out through ours. God, we want to we be people that see that increasingly more in our lives. So would you make that a reality as we respond to you? this morning. We pray for your glory and your sake. Amen.